Good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's good to see all of you. Welcome. Welcome again. We're halfway through the service, but welcome. All right, we're going to get into the word this morning. Uh, we're we're kind of in the home stretch on the book of Colossians, and so we got a few weeks left. And uh, so, yeah, go ahead and grab your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can borrow the Pew Bible for the day. We're on page 984 and 985, and we'll be in the uh, book of Colossians chapter 3, and we will be in verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. All right, so once you find your spot, go ahead and stand up, and we'll take a read of it together, and then pray and dive in. All right, once you're there, go ahead and just uh, listen along as I read. Uh, Paul writes in Colossians 3, starting in verse 22, Bondservants, or slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this gathering. Uh, we thank you for this opportunity to unite uh, under one banner, the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning, on this first day of the week, in this, on this dreary Seattle day, Super Bowl Sunday, okay, but more than that, we are united together in Christ, and so I pray that you would uh, clear away the cobwebs of our minds, uh, help us to be undistracted so that we can listen and hear from you. And I pray that you would assist me in explaining this passage, which is a tricky one. And that uh, we would learn what you want us to learn this morning. That your spirit, uh, by your word, would impact us deeply and profoundly. Uh, and that it would impact our lives, not just our day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. Okay, uh, so deep breath. This is a tricky passage, <laughs> for uh, especially for us 21st century Americans, and rightly so. Uh, there are, it's a tough one. We're we're talking. Paul is talking directly to slaves and masters, um, and so for this passage, as well as the parallel passage in Ephesians uh, six. There are two common responses to it. Uh, the first response to a passage like this uh, is to use this passage or others like it to say, see, see, the Bible is outdated and regressive. There it is 
right there. The problem with that response is it's not true. (laughs) The Bible is not outdated, nor is it regressive. But, but, we do need to translate it from its original context into ours, which is very different. The second common response is to ignore the fact that Paul says slaves and masters and jump straight to, oh, well, he's just talking about, you know, employees, employer, and that's fine. Um, That response is better because it seeks to find a message for us today from the Scripture, which is a good thing. But we can't brush past the original context so fast. The reality is, in this passage that Paul is using an uncomfortable metaphor here. Just as he uses marriage and parenting as metaphors for how we relate to God the Father, how we relate to Christ, in this passage he uses the institution, as he knew it, of household slavery in his day as a metaphor between us and Christ. So, Paul, he's an apostle, he's, a, he's an, um, a spokesperson for Jesus Christ himself as an apostle. He consistently introduces himself as a slave of Christ. And when he says in verse 24 that we should be serving the Lord Christ, the word is actually slaving for the Lord Christ. And so when we jump straight to an employee-employer analogy, we lose sight of something, which is the extremity of what Paul is calling for in our relationship with Christ. The basic message of this passage in the context of where we are in Colossians is fairly simple. We are to apply the lordship of Jesus Christ to our unique context. Whatever that is. And in turn, that becomes our unique calling. Serve Jesus with all that you are, wherever you are. Serve Him with the power and privilege that you have or with the power and privilege that you don't have. But we can't jump straight to that straightforward message so fast. You know, we need to address this elephant in the room, which is that Paul is talking to slaves. He's talking about slavery here. Why on earth, we might ask, doesn't Paul go full-on activist apostle mode and call for the abolishment of all forms of slavery. This is his chance, right? A brand new community, a brand new humanity in Christ. The upside-down kingdom has been inaugurated, and this is what he says to slaves and masters? Come on, Paul. And so once again, before we rush to that assumption, Just like last week, we need to hold our our postmodern American horse for a minute and see if we can't place ourselves in Paul's context. 
And so first, we have to do our best to properly differentiate between the slavery that existed in the ancient Roman Empire, which is where Paul is writing from, in the first century of this age, and the slavery that we had in America in the pre-Civil War South. And I say properly differentiate because they aren't completely different. Many people want to baptize ancient slavery like it was merely an indentured servitude and can easily translate to an employee-employer relationship. While it's true that ancient slavery was primarily economic versus race-based, there remains the reality that one human being owned another human being like property. But, at the same time, it is true that ancient slavery that Paul is referring to here was very different than American slavery. Kidnapping was the foundation of American slavery and is condemned in the scriptures. Slavery was almost exclusively race-based, determined by the color of one's skin, whereas in ancient Rome there were slaves of all ethnicities and skin colors. Paul is writing in the context of an institution that was universally recognized. It was almost invisible. It was just part of the fabric of society, and roughly one-third of the Roman world were slaves. But perhaps the most uncomfortable difference between slavery in the Roman Empire and slavery in America was that in many cases, slavery in America was justified using these exact words. That's the real issue here. And so the real concern is whether the Bible, the supposedly inerrant and inspired word of God, properly condemns an institution that is so utterly evil. And so this is, of course, a hotly debated issue and one that you'll no doubt run into in conversations with coworkers or at the Thanksgiving table. Many progressive Christians or non-Christians say that no, the Bible does not condemn slavery, but rather condones the status quo. Therefore, they say, the Bible itself is suspect. And at that point, they stand over the Scripture and ultimately throw it out on the grounds that it is outdated and regressive. And so we don't know for sure why Paul here and others like Peter don't call for the abolition of slavery. It could have been because they hadn't worked out the practical implications of their theology. And what we'll get to is that those implications are there. It could have been because they were a tiny new religious movement in the context of the most powerful empire in human history, and they didn't have our modern American sensibilities of changing public policy. That just wasn't on their radar. 
but rather they were concerned with how they could serve Christ in their context, whatever that is, whether they're a slave or a master. So whatever Paul's reasons for not calling for manumission or releasing of slaves or abolition, we cannot ignore the countercultural way that he treats this institution. The revolutionary way in his context that he treats it, undermines it, and ultimately provides the theology behind the eventual abolishment of slavery, especially here in America, which was a movement pioneered by Christians. We also cannot ignore the fact that neither here nor anywhere does Paul or any other author of Scripture condone the institution of slavery. It's just not there. And so, looking at this passage this morning, how does Paul undermine slavery in this passage? We're in the context of a household code. Last week we talked, where, or we looked at where Paul talks to wives, husbands, children, fathers. And here he turns to the household staff, the household slaves. And so, you know, in, the, in ancient times, a household wasn't just a mom, a dad, two kids, a, a nanny, and a white picket fence. That's not what a household was. A, the household in ancient times would have been rather large. And it would have included the nuclear family, but also extended relatives and household slaves. And so from an ancient Greco-Roman perspective, turning from issues of family to the staff of the household, that's completely normal and expected. So, so far we're, we're right on track as far as what we would expect of a household code. But that's where the similarities end. Just like last week, in a typical household code, the lesser persons, the lesser people with less social status would not have been addressed at all, let alone addressed first. And so Paul, once again, he addresses the slaves first and reverses expectations. And he Christianizes it. He's refer- he refers to Christ four times over the course of this passage and his lordship. And so what Paul does here is revolutionary. Basically, he tells the slaves of the household that in obeying their earthly master, what they are really doing is obeying their true master. In ancient Rome, the slave's master owned all of him or her as property. Paul here relativizes the master's authority underneath Christ's authority. But he goes even further. The entire household, slave and free, are all underneath the same master in heaven. And so Paul here in Colossians is sending two messages regarding slavery. First, as in chapter 3, verse 11, you can see it right there. It says, here in this new community... There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. 
Paul wants both slaves and masters to reckon with the fact that in Christ there is a new reality. Christ is both of your master. A new reality has dawned. And then second, Paul embraces the metaphor. Look, look just down a few verses in chapter 4, verse 12. It says, it says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. And that word servant is doulos, which is the same word up in, in the passage we have today, the word for slave or bondservant. Paul does not assess the institution of slavery here, but he utilizes it. He utilizes it as a metaphor for his own purposes. We are all, Paul says, masters and slaves, we are all slaves of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word master in our passage is the same as Lord. It's, it's kurios. It's the same word. For us, you know, in 21st century America, this is an uncomfortable metaphor. And understandably so. You know, every time I consider how people who looked like me and worshipped a God that I worship, subjugated my dark-skinned brothers and sisters in Christ, my stomach just churns. I hate that. I hate that. I hate that that's true. And so it's no wonder that for us it's hard to stomach these metaphors, especially this one, and these passages, and not be distracted away from the deeper meaning that they can offer us. And so before we move on and look for that deeper meaning, there's one last thing to say about slavery here. This household code, it's, a, it's very similar to the one in Ephesians, but Ephesians is a lot longer, and it treats marriage and parenting a lot more than this one does. This one is nine verses long, and five out of the nine verses are addressed to slaves and masters. Why is that? Why does he spend the majority of his time speaking to slaves and masters here in Colossae. So the, it's a really curious question. And the, the most likely answer is found just a few verses below. If you look at chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, we're getting, at that point we're getting into kind of the weeds of the logistics of a letter, which, you know, when we're reading by ourselves at home, we usually just kind of go, okay, he's wrapping up, I'm done here. <laughs> But what does he say? He says in verse 7, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant, same word, in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he, he may encourage your hearts. And this is the key here. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Some of you might recognize that name, Onesimus. It's from the book of Philemon, and it is thought by most scholars, based on the book of Philemon specifically, as well as the book of Colossians here, that Onesimus was a runaway slave. He was owned by Philemon, who was a member of the Colossian church. 
Onesimus ran away from Philemon's household. He met Paul. He became a Christian and is now being sent back by Paul to Philemon. And he is helping to carry this letter to that church. And so, this is what uh, Paul writes to Philemon regarding this runaway slave Onesimus in uh, the book of Philemon, which is only one chapter long. He says, For this, perhaps, is why he, Onesimus, was parted from you, Philemon, for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And then Paul continues, he says, For if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. And so this is how Paul addresses a slave owner in Colossae, in regards to a runaway slave that Paul has been uh, discipling as a new believer in Jesus. And Paul here in verse 9 describes Onesimus as our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Wow. Paul spends more time exhorting the slaves and masters in Colossae because there is a personal story happening here. And of course, as everything is, It's hotly debated if Paul is directly calling for Philemon to release him or not. He doesn't say specifically, release him from your service or anything like that. But in the very least, Paul is outlining the spiritual reality that it's already at play. In Christ, Onesimus is now a beloved brother to Philemon. Equal in value to Paul himself. And so, all that to say is for those who claim that this passage condones the institution of slavery, I say, on the contrary, Paul undermines it completely, and he sets the stage for its abolition. And so, but what about us today? What can be our takeaway from the passage in front of us? I titled the sermon today, Who Are You Working For? Because the truth is that the bottom line here is knowing who you are working for. Whether you're someone with power, working for yourself, with people under you, or you're someone at the bottom of the ladder, working for the man, with no one under you. According to Paul, ultimately, You are serving the Lord Christ. This doesn't just apply to employment. Although, of course, it does apply to that. It applies to any vocation in your life, unpaid or paid. This passage shows us that work, work itself, is meaningful. Work matters. The lordship of Jesus applies to each facet of your work. How is that? 
Well, first we see that Jesus is your identity in your work. Look at verses 22 and 23 again. It says, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. These verses warn against deriving your identity from the work itself or others' impressions of your work. Did you catch that? Don't work by way of eye service as people pleasers. Those are literally just compound words that Paul uses. The word for eye and the word for service stuck together. The word for people and the word for pleaser stuck together. Those of us who have spent any time in an office, like in person, not working from home, know what it's like to work uh, and the difference between working when your boss is in their office and when your boss is standing at your desk. It feels different. Paul recommends that we skip that step. He says, don't work to please your boss. He says, work to please your boss. Capital B. We are to work, he says, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. I love that because the word sincerity is literally just the word for singleness, as in singularly focused. He says, with singleness of heart, fearing the Lord. Basically, even in our unique vocation, whatever it is, we are to have a singular focus to please Christ. Serving him is our, ident- our identity, not the work itself or people's impressions of our work. You know, it's easy to work well when you have a good boss. But what about when you have a bummer boss? Is it easy to work well? No, it's not. But all of us who are in Christ have the best boss ever. And ultimately, that's who we're serving. And so first, Jesus is your identity in your work. But second, Jesus is the judge of your work. Look at verse 24 and 25. It says, knowing that from the Lord, Jesus, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And so, as you can see from Paul's words here, this should be both ecstatically hope-giving and sobering. And returning to slaves for a moment, Paul includes them in the category of those who will receive the inheritance. Here's the thing. Slaves don't receive an inheritance. But in Christ, they do. What Paul is saying here is that there is no menial work in the kingdom of Christ. None. You don't have to achieve special status before your work is counted as valuable. You know, you could be a lifelong, devout Christian doing Mother Teresa-like things. Or you could be like the thief on the cross. 
entering the kingdom by the skin of your teeth just prior to taking your last breath. The inheritance is the same. Isn't that amazing? If you're sincere, singularly focused on pleasing your true master, then your work is a meaningful contribution to the kingdom. But Jesus is the one who decides. He's the judge. As we see in verse 25, the world isn't the judge. Your boss isn't the judge. You aren't the judge. Jesus is. And that's why we fear him alone. In Matthew 10, Jesus talks about fearing God versus fearing man. And he says, fear God and you don't need to be afraid anymore. Be afraid of one person, the person who laid down his life for you. Fear him. And your fear of others doesn't need to exist anymore. And so Jesus is the identity, our identity. Jesus is the judge. And finally, Jesus is the model for our work. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so Paul exhorts the masters to treat their slaves justly and fairly. I mean, just to our modern ears, it just sounds paradoxical, right? Masters, treat your slaves with justice and equity. But to have power today in our day and age is looked down upon by default. You know, anyone with power is suspect. And of course, it's because of abuses of power. But Jesus doesn't abolish power. He doesn't abolish situations and, and dynamics where there's, there's power involved. When you work for someone, they have power over you. When you're a parent, you have power over your children. Power is not, power is neutral. Power was created by God. Power can be abused. And so how did Jesus treat power? He didn't abolish power dynamics. He turned them upside down. Do you remember what he told the 12 apostles who would become and who would go on to establish the institution of the church, who would become in the churches, in the church world, very powerful? What did he say to them? He said, the rulers of the nations lord it over one another and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. He's talking to the leaders of the church. He says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is the model for our work. This is the upside-down kingdom. Jesus, the person to whom belongs all authority in heaven and on earth, the person by whom, through whom, for whom all things were created, came not to be served, but to serve. 
And according to Philippians 2, Jesus emptied himself of his divine privileges and took the form of a slave. He laid down his power for our sake. And so most of us will at some point, if we are good workers, if we're good employees, be entrusted with power. Jesus models for us and empowers us to exercise authority and power in his way. Justly and fairly. That word justly basically just means with righteousness. It means vertically right. You know, how are you treating and carrying yourself in your power, in your responsibility, in your authority, whatever it is, are you doing it fearing God? Are you doing it knowing that you have a master in heaven? And then fairly basically just means horizontally righteous. Are you being fair? So there's some questions that this passage elicits. Do you view all of what you do under the lordship of Christ? All of what you do. Do you view your outside of church work as unto Christ? Do you view work itself as part of the fall or part of God's good creation? Do you think the Spirit wants to empower you for your day job as much as He empowers you for your side hustle or your ministry passions? How do you view a life of serving God? As a burden or as the good life? Your answers to these questions will determine your readiness to, as Paul puts it, work heartily or work from the soul. To throw yourself into your unique vocation as Jesus has called you to. Vocation is just a word that means calling. Have you noticed how your willingness to work hard correlates with your view of your boss? If you have a demanding, micromanaging boss, you might work hard, but you're going to end up with a check-the-box mentality. I'm just going to do what I need to do to get the job done and be gone. But if you have a boss that inspires you, that empowers you, that, that casts a vision that you can resonate with, who is understanding of your weaknesses and yet invites you to do great things, then you thrive. You know, our willingness to work heartily as unto the Lord is very much contingent on how we view our Lord. How do you view Jesus? Do you view him as a harsh taskmaster or as the self-sacrificing understanding of your weakness loves you more than you can ever imagine, Lord of all? I'm going to steal something from Andres because we were talking the other day. But he stole it from a sermon that he heard, so it's all good. It's stolen third hand. Perhaps you don't know what God's will is for your life especially maybe your career. 
what you do for work, what you do for money, how you put food on the table. Let me suggest that you might be asking the wrong question. No, instead of asking, what is God's will for my life? Ask instead, what is God's will? Period. What is God's will? And then, once you kind of understand what God's will is, what he's doing in the world, how he wants humanity to thrive, how he's bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth, how he created work pre-fall to be done and given as a gift. Once you get there, once you understand who God is and what he's doing, you can then interrogate yourself and, and ask and see what God is doing in the world and where it interacts with my personal passions. You know, this isn't just about evangelism, although certainly God is all about the good news of the gospel going out to all peoples through the church. But God is in the midst of all types of industries, working for the flourishing of human beings in the name of Jesus. And he's doing it through his body, of which you are a member. So your work matters. And I love how this household code is sandwiched between two exhortations to thanksgiving. Look at verse 17. It says, whatever you do, in word or deed, in action or speech, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then in verse 2 of chapter 4, it says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And so here we see these exhortations to glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ with whatever you do, wherever you do it, it's sandwiched with thanksgiving. You know, though God created work pre-fall, here's the thing, work has been affected by the fall. Some of us are aimless. We're, We're aimless. We're finding nothing that lights the fire under us. Nothing that gets us out of bed in the morning. Nothing that we can cut our teeth on and, and think, oh, I'm just in, I want to go to work because I'm contributing. I'm an asset to other people. Some of us are having a hard time finding that. Others of us have found our dream job, perhaps. But we're being crushed by it because we can't possibly do a good enough job to, to, to warrant a thumbs up from either ourselves or others. We're finding our identity in how well we do instead of how loved we are. But that's where thanksgiving comes in. No matter your relationship with work or with power, practice thanksgiving. It's always the next step. It's always a good next step. For the person who laid down his power for you, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to, but he emptied himself, 
taking on the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Christ, we always have a reason to give thanks. And it's not, I will love you if you do a good job. It's, I will love you and I will help you do a good job. I will empower you to work hard for my sake. I will lead you on paths of righteousness for my name's sake. For we are each created in Christ for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. He's given each of us good things to do as a gift. It's all modeled on how he did his. And so we can practice and will practice praise and thanksgiving for the one who gives us meaningful work and the power to do it well and the grace to fail. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you in need. God, the truth is that we are always, every day, constantly, desperately needy for you. I pray for those this morning who have a difficult relationship with career, with vocation, with calling, with work, with money, with power. I pray that these words would sink deeply into our hearts and that we could, because of who you are, we could be singularly devoted to you, fearing you alone, more than others, more than ourselves. We thank you that you are more good than we give you credit for. Thank you that Psalm 103 lays out these beautiful characteristics of yours. I pray that your spirit would impress on us your true character and that we could serve you with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. Please empower us to do so by your spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen.